grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing? I hope you said fine. I'm doing great. This is the first show. Let me get this going here. This is the first show from the changes I made. Um, my, my good friends, Karen and Michael, graciously gave me a new uh, computer kind of workstation desk thing. It's, it's a desk riser. And so I was real excited to get it. I'm going to be able to expand everything I do here by adding a couple monitors because I've been wanting to add some monitors and stuff in here but I didn't have the room so now I do with this desk riser so as you can see the camera is even a little higher than it usually is when I'm broadcasting and that's because the computer I like it I've been working with it. it took me all it took me hours last night to get everything moved it's amazing it's amazing how long it takes to move anyway my name is Charlotte I'm going to be your host for the next hour I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based on a sunny Sacramento. Sunny today, rain tomorrow. And uh, we're 45 strong up and down the state of California. And that means if you think you might have a paranormal need, we can find you. But it'll take us, excuse me, pardon me, I had a little chocolate. Uh, we can get to you. It might take us a little while. California is a really, really large state. So in some cases, it might take a couple hours. Or if we you know, have to wait a day or two to get to you, we do have mediums on staff who can call you and kind of calm down you know, what, what it, whatever's going on before we get out there. Okay. Anyway, my guest tonight, we're going to swing right into it. He's been on before. His name is Wayne Passell. And he's an, act, he's an animal activist. And he has seen some really, really gnarly things that people have done to, done to animals. And I'm not just talking dogs and cats. I'm talking cat, cattle, you know, any kind of uh, kangaroo, any kind of animal you can think of. He has witnessed some really, really gnarly things. And so he's on to talk to us about a couple things he's been involved with. Uh, it's going to be a, it's going to be a phone call interview just to let you know. Um, so yeah, we're going to be going out live on the phone. And uh, so I'll have, of course, I'll have the gra usual graphics up in between, but it should be an interesting show. And, uh, he lives in, he's, I think he's in Washington, D.C., and he wants to be off right at 7.30, so we're going to make sure that we do that for him. But I want to welcome you all. If you're watching from Facebook and you like what you see tonight, please be sure to hit that like and follow button if you haven't done so already. Uh, and also share it with your friends. Let people know about the show. We want to get the word out about the show. Okay? Again, if you're watching from YouTube, same thing. If you haven't subscribed already, please be sure to subscribe if you like what you hear and... Uh, Show us some love and hit that like button and the love and the little heart button and all that stuff and show us some love and share it with anybody you know. Okay. Anyhow, let's see who's in the chat room right now. Because I'm having some fun here. Or having okay. Hello, Pamela Schmidt's in the chat room. Okay. All right. So I'm gonna go ahead and call him and we're gonna get this show started. Again, my name is Charlotte. I'm gonna be your host for the next hour. Okay, here we go. Let me get this thing going. Let's get this party started. Wayne Hi, Wayne. This is Charlotte Cosa. Hey, Charlotte. How are you? Fine. How are you? Good. I'm going to put my hair plugs in. Sure. I'm going to put you down over here. There we go. Yeah. Good. Good to, good to hear your voice again. Yeah. Everything well with you? Yeah, everything's it's great. Um, it's good to hear from you too. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm so glad to connect again. So, for the people that don't know who you are, can you give us some background, please? Sure. I'm Wayne Pizzelli, and I live in the Washington D.C. area. I've been an animal welfare advocate for my entire adult life. In fact, I started an animal welfare group when I was a college student. And I have run a number of the large national animal welfare groups. And now I run two organizations. One is called Animal Wellness Action. That group seeks to influence uh, public policy. So we're passing laws 
to help animals and prevent animal cruelty. And we also work to enforce the laws once they're enacted. So, for example, you know, passing a law to ban dog fighting and cock fighting mm-hmm. on every inch of U.S. soil, and then working to see that the laws are enforced. Then the second group that I run is called the Center for a Humane Economy. And while animal wellness action seeks to influence business, excuse me, animal wellness action seeks to influence government, mm-hmm. it's the Center for a Humane Economy that seeks to influence business. Mm-hmm. So we just had a very big pair of wins. We have a campaign at the Center for the Humane Economy called Kangaroos Are Not Shoes. And we were able to secure commitments from Puma and Nike, two of the three uh, biggest brands in the world for athletic shoes and other athletic wear, that they will no longer, uh, by the end of 2023, use kangaroo skins to make their soccer cleats. And there are two million kangaroos killed every single year in the outback of Australia mainly to make soccer cleats. There are some other uses for the kangaroos, uh, but this is an absolute massacre of kangaroos, and there's tremendous collateral damage with the newborns who are known as joeys. Many of your listeners probably know that. Mm-hmm. The joeys are in the pouch or at the foot of their mothers, and the mothers are shot, so the, the joeys are orphaned, and it's 500,000 to 800,000 joeys orphaned wow. every year. That's just an just an unbelievable collateral effect of this uh, commercial slaughter of kangaroos. That's incredible. I didn't know it was that large a slaughter. And it's done It's done for foreign markets for a product that nobody needs any longer. Uh, we have long recognized that these companies, Nike and Puma and Adidas, mm-hmm. have largely moved away from kangaroo skins for most of their shoes. In fact, the World Cup, which is the premier global event for soccer, was was uh, conducted in November, December of 2022, and it was a remarkable final. Argentina beat Brazil in a shootout uh, in overtime, and we added up all of the the goals that were scored in every game from the first you know the first match uh, to the to the final with Argentina and France. There were 172 goals scored, scored Charlotte. Wow. 164 of them came off of the feet of soccer players. These are the most elite soccer players in the world who are using non-kangaroo-based shoes. So it's already been clear that the best players in the world don't need kangaroo skin shoes. And finally, we were able to get these companies to stop uh, using some significant set of models of shoes made from kangaroos and when you think about this this is the biggest sport in the world right it's played not just all over the united states it's in mexico it's in argentina it's brazil and nigeria and and kenya and all over europe and china i mean the whole globe and what is the core equipment that you need to play soccer you need soccer cleats Mm -hmm. you know you wear a shirt and shorts so for these companies to change their tune is incredible. And I really encourage everyone to go to our website, centerforhumaneeconomy.org, and sign up and get our alerts because we need your help to get Nike to follow the lead of Puma and, and Nike. Adidas is, is, a, is an outlier at this point. Mm-hmm. It's totally unacceptable that, that Adidas is still making shoes made from kangaroos it's it's completely unacceptable this is a germany-based company and they need to get in alignment with their major competitors now absolutely was that you mentioned that you know the soccer players were getting all their goals with with non-kangaroo shoes has that been the argument that 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 the kangaroo based shoe is is better well that used to be the argument i mean essentially it was puma in the 1960s that started this phenomenon and the argument was well the kangaroo skin is very strong Mm -hmm. and it's thin uh and you have a great feel for it when you're playing soccer i think it was mostly marketing hype i mean there may be a little bit of truth to it but Mm -hmm. the reality is that we can have that same effect with these other fabrics that we create in fact when puma made its announcement uh, earlier in in March, 
they said that the feel of these new fabrics that they're going to use, they'll be vegan shoes, are superior to anything that's ever been offered by the company. And again, all you need to do is look at the data from the World Cup. The world's elite players, 95% of them wear shoes that are not made from kangaroos. Most of them are vegan. And this is just the way the world is changing. You know, what I often say is that it's not just a matter of cruelty to animals. Mm-hmm. It's that we are smart enough to figure out ways to live our lives, to conduct sport like soccer, uh, to you know eat foods that don't come from factory farms, to have testing methods and laboratories that don't rely on tormenting primates or dogs. Mm-hmm that we humans are very different and distinct. Uh, We are incredibly ingenuitive and creative, and we can figure out ways to get the things that we need to get done, but not leave a trail of animal victims. And that's really, you know, what we specialize in at the Center for Humane Economy and Animal Wellness Action. Now, with the kangaroo concern, they're not humanely killing them, are they? They're not humanely killed because, I mean, humane killing is a difficult thing to achieve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that it's, it's difficult to make that, that, that argument that when you're in the wild and you're shooting these animals from 100 meters in the dead of night, I mean, the animals inevitably, you know, some of them are not killed quickly. Mm-hmm. And they, 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 you know, hop away. Um, you know, in the darkness, not to be retrieved, to, to die, you know, in some cases, uh, a lingering death. But then the joeys, I mean, they're orphaned, and if, if they scamper away and aren't found in the dark at night, then, you know, they're going to starve, or mm-hmm. a predator's going to come and consume them without their mother to protect them. And I don't see how anyone can say that's humane. And, you know, what the Australian government tells the commercial hunters to do. These are not sport hunters who are doing this for personal utilization. Mm -hmm. These are commercial hunters who are individually killing lots of kangaroos and then doing it for profit to ship their parts all over the world. They tell the hunters, the commercial hunters, that they come across one of the joeys to bash their skull in with a rock or hit their head against the bumper or the the back end of their truck. So this this is crude. Mm-hmm. This is coarse. This is inhumane. And again, it's the scale of it. There's no bigger slaughter of wildlife in the world than the commercial uh, kangaroo slaughter. I worked for many years to dramatically reduce the Canadian seal hunt. Mm-hmm. Every spring, uh, these harp seals and hooded seals swim down from Greenland down the Atlantic coast of Canada. So, uh, past Newfoundland and Labrador, and and then sometimes they go down to Prince Edward Island and even off of New Brunswick and, and Nova Scotia. And these baby seals are born, um, obviously, you know, on these ice flows. The mother's coats are not coveted in the international fur markets, but the babies who have this brilliant white coat wore for many years, mm-hmm. and they were killing 300,000 baby seals. So these men would come in boats with guns and then with clubs. It's actually called a hockapick. It's got a blunt, it's got a blunt metal, um, you know, uh, uh, flattened um, element at the top uh, on one side of this, of this, you know, big swinging club and hammer. So like a giant hammer. And the other side, it's got a sharp metal spike, oh. and so they club them with the with the with the flat blunt metal end of the club, and then they stick them with the with the sharp spike once they've killed them or injured them and to pull them onto the uh, onto the ship. So that was a horror. These poor baby seals—they're too young to be able to swim, and they don't have any legs, so they can't run. Mm-hmm. They just have their 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 flippers and fins excuse me flippers and and uh you know it was just so it was just so barbaric and the animals are so vulnerable it was a nursery that these men came into a nursery oh. and massacred all the all the babies but that was 300,000 victims 
Wow. This in Australia is two million. It's seven <laughs> times bigger. And it's twice as many juveniles killed. So it's something that is of enormous scale. And I felt when, when we at the Center for Humane Economy with the support of Animal Wellness Action, when we launched this campaign, uh-huh. I really, really felt that Nike, Adidas, Puma, uh, New Balance, uh, Mizuma, these big athletic shoe companies couldn't withstand the scrutiny. That right. This practice was so horrific and so unnecessary because other fabrics could get the job done for a professional soccer player or a weekend soccer player, you know, or a 14 year old kid who is trying out for his local soccer team, Mm -hmm. that all of those needs of sport could be met by the fabrics. So why do this to these poor kangaroos, the iconic symbols of Australia, along with the koala. Right. And uh, fortunately this month, Charlotte was a breakthrough month to get Puma and Nike so these are just tremendous wins for mm-hmm. the Center for Humane Economy. So it's, it, I understand that perfectly. The other thing I was thinking when you were talking about the uses of the kangaroo that they use over there, and I know this because I have an Australian uh, dog, a Kelpie, and I know a lot of the times that they will use kangaroo bones for the dogs too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, they they do they do sell some they, they do take some of the meat the main reason they kill the kangaroos for the skin but they try mm-hmm. to extract more profit from them and they use it in dog food for the most part mm-hmm. but you know most dog food companies don't do it i mean when you kill animals for meat whether it's for human consumption or for or companion animals you are basically in a cooled environment right mm-hmm. you're in a slaughterhouse right and you know you get the animal um in a shoot and you know if it's a if it's if it's a cow you know cattle then use a captive bolt gun and shoot them in the head and you know then you slit their throat and and you know the blood drains from them it's supposed to be quick it's supposed to be painless but obviously there are a lot of you know challenges in terms of stress mm-hmm. um entering transport and then going into the chute and prodding them and then if they see what's going on obviously you know that's that these are conscious alert right. animals uh, and you know that once they kill them they immediately get it to a, a very cooled uh, temperature wise environment and they refrigerate the meat these animals are killed way out in the wild in the outback there's no refrigeration there i mean they might have a small heater on their truck but mm-hmm. they're out shooting for hours and it takes a while to get the animals you know properly process where you can even get them into a cooling apparatus on the truck so i think as a as a food safety issue raises really significant questions and again killing wild animals for global markets for pet food Mm -hmm. we stopped that we don't i you can't think of other species that we do that with in the world Mm -hmm. and no other species in the wild is killed for shoes i mean yes you do have you know alligator boots and and the like but those animals are typically farmed this is killing animals from the wild from their native habitats these are not non-native species the other thing i was thinking of and this goes back to when i was little like i would say around seven or eight years old and i remember being on this farm this ranch and this horse was eating dog food and my dad got this chuckle out of it because you know a lot we all know what some of the dog food used to be made out of you know, and here the horse was almost like like yeah. a cannibal eating eating you know dog eating dog food that had horse stuff in it. Yeah, I mean, this, that has changed. Yeah. It, it used yeah, it used to be we had a lot of slaughterhouses for horses in the United States, mm-hmm. and even in 1990, if you go back 30 years ago, a little more than 30 years ago, we were killing 350,000 American horses at uh, maybe 10 slaughter plants in the U.S., and then we were also exporting some of them to Canada and Mexico. The good news is is that that number is down to 20,000 American horses slaughtered for human consumption. And that's again down from 350,000. And we at Animal Wellness Action are mounting an effort uh, this year to end all North American slaughter of American horses. And we in, in the United States don't eat horses, uh, but 
we have exported them and we export them, I mean, the meat, uh, when we had slaughter parts in the U.S. and now when we live export them to Canada and Mexico, they don't eat them either. So they're mainly exported to Japan, China, and Russia. And it used to be that the Europeans, you know, had a number of countries that ate a decent amount of it. Italy was number mm -hmm. one, France, Belgium uh, were, were up there as well. But the horses come off of, you know, a farm or they're coming out of a, a pleasure riding situation or they're a, a working horse for, with like a police unit where they come off the racetrack. Right. And their medication history is unknown when they're presented for slaughter. You don't know mm -hmm. if they're getting butazolid, which is an anti-inflammatory, which is forbidden for use in animals destined for uh, consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, we did a report a number of years ago, 129 different drugs are routinely administered to horses that are forbidden for consumption. So the European Union looked at this after they saw that report and said, oh my gosh, we're we're violating all of our norms and all of our scientific standards in permitting this. So that uh, the Europeans really cut off the slaughtered horses from Mexico and they put some new standards for uh, horses that are slaughtered in Canada. And this has been a boon to reduce the numbers, but now we need a United States policy. We've shut all the slaughter plants down in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Now we need to stop taking American horses on long distance transport to Canada and Mexico for slaughter. Mm. The other question I had that I was thinking about, what about China with, with the dog festivals and stuff? Is there anything being done that way? Oh, yes. I mean, it's difficult. I mean, China is a, uh, is a, you know, communist and, uh, you know, totalitarian government and they don't you know tolerate dissent like we have in the united states mm -hmm. they don't have a network of nonprofit organizations you know we have a million nonprofits in the united states that advance animal welfare environmental protection you know feed the hungry mm -hmm. shelter the homeless uh you know fight breast cancer alzheimer's or heart disease mm -hmm. or you name it i mean there are Nonprofits for every kind of social concern in our society. This is kind of the private safety net that supplements, you know, what government might do to provide some assistance in in cases. And that has meant, when it comes to animal welfare, that we've had 150 years of normalizing mm -hmm. uh, notions of of proper treatment of animals, humane treatment, opposition to animal cruelty. But the Chinese have never had that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just thinking of animals in a strictly utilitarian uh, form has been the way that that society has operated for a long time. So that has meant that dog eating has been, has been you know, part of the experience of some substantial number of people. I mean, people were using ivory. They had lots of ivory carving shops until that stopped because of world pressure. Same thing with traditional Chinese medicine. They use rhino horn. They use bear gallbladder. Mm -hmm. uh, there are enormous factory farms. There are high-rise factory farms for pigs in China. So we take for granted groups like the Center for Humane Economy and Animal Wellness Action and thousands of other animal welfare groups, and we're struggling and fighting to stop these atrocious abuses in the United States, like dog fighting and cock fighting, horse slaughter and lots of other things that I mentioned, but right. the Chinese with a population of 1.4 billion and an awfully utilitarian attitude toward animals, it's just kind of, as Ross Perot used to say, it's a giant sucking sound. I mean, to paraphrase Ross Perot, I mean, you, you just get a lot of animals just consumed mm -hmm. by a country like that. I mean, they depopulated a lot of the forests in Asia for, um, you know, killing wildlife for traditional medicine and for mm -hmm. food. And, they were huge consumers of, as I said, ivory uh, and bear gallbladders. This is a real challenge. China is a real threat uh, to animals. There, there, there's no question. Now there's an emerging animal welfare movement there, uh, finally, but um, there's a long way to go with that country. Now, uh, with dog fighting, you know, there's a lot of rumors you that, that are on the internet about how the dog fighters are able to get the dogs that they get. 
you know, there's rumors about uh, houses being, you know, fences or houses being marked and, and things like that, or people like on Craigslist that, that want to give their dog away and it ends up going to a dog fighting ring. Are, are any of those rumors true the way they do that? You know, I think there are a lot of um, rumors on that. It's difficult to know. And I think clearly uh, dog fighters are disreputable people. Um, they're criminals. Uh, they are, you know, do awful things to to uh, animals. And they're gambling on it, which is a crime. Uh, and that form of gambling is a crime. And it's often tied up in narcotics trafficking and money laundering and a wide range of other criminal conduct. The, you know, you're not going to get an upstanding person, you know, who's doing that. So right. it's not like they're going to be a model citizen when they're not dog fighting. So sure, they can steal dogs. Sure, they can misrepresent why they want the animal. I do think sometimes people exaggerate it at, at okay. times. I don't think that the cruelty is ever exaggerated. I mean, it's just it's miserable and terrible. But I think, you know, it just goes, goes to the point that if we have an animal in our lives, uh, we have to provide security and safety, mm -hmm. and we have to be on the lookout for people who, who do terrible things. And, uh, you know, this is a felony. We want people to report animal fighting crimes to us. Uh, people can, can send us an email at animalcruelty-tips at animalwellnessaction.org if you're aware of cockfighting or dogfighting in your community. We want to know. We'll try to work with law enforcement to, to uh, take action. We have partnering organizations that are specialists also in investigations. Uh, there's a group called Showing Animals Respect and Kindness, Shark, that uh, we partner with on cockfighting investigations. And there are a lot of uh, a lot of things you can do. But you know, any any animal problem requires an engaged and conscious citizenry. We have to be alert to these problems. And mm -hmm. uh, we have to confront these problems when, when they emerge. Absolutely. What's one of the worst cases that you come across in the United States? With animals? Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends, Charlotte. You know, I would draw a distinction between kind of random acts of cruelty where mm -hmm. someone does, you know, something just god-awful to an animal, a pet, or a horse, or, uh, you know, some, some other poor creature who's been victimized. I won't even say some of the things that people do. And then there are the systemic abuses of animals, like factory farming and laboratory animal testing and the uh, mistreatment of animals in wildlife management, trophy hunting and uh, commercial trapping with still like old traps or you know, the commercial killing of kangaroos that I mentioned. Right. There's the killing of, of other animals for their, for their fur, like mink farms. Uh, you know, having these mink on, on factory farms and killing them for their pelts. I mean, so I think many of the things that go on, I mean, the mink farms are just atrocious. These are wild animals that are aquatic and they're solitary, and they're put in cages oftentimes with other mink. I mean, mm. these are highly aggressive animals. Uh, we have one, I have one colleague who, who uh, is a devoted animal activist, but he grew up on a, on a ranch in Idaho and Utah, and his family was in a cattle ranch, but they had a mink farm. And he used to go in the morning, his grandfather used to assign him, go in the morning and pull out the dead mink who had been killed the prior day because of aggression between the mink, because they were, they were housed together. I mean, this is totally, it's so abusive mm -hmm. and so reckless and for what? For a mink coat that nobody needs any longer. Fortunately, again, as I, I mentioned before about the horse slaughter decline, it used to be 350,000 horses in 1990, slaughtered for human consumption, you know, for export to Asia and Europe, down to 20,000 now. Well, around 1960, we had 7,000 mink farms in the United States. Now we're down to 60. So from 7,000 to 60, but wow. some of them are pretty big. So we're, they're still killing a million and a half mink a year. But this is totally unacceptable from a cruelty perspective. But it's also a terrible threat because you because mink are uniquely susceptible to uh, viruses. And 
all of the documented cases of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, that have spilled over from animals to humans have been mink. There have wow. been five cases of this, one in Michigan and then uh, four in Europe that are documented. And there was just a recent case of mink getting um, avian influenza or bird flu mm -hmm. from chickens. And there's deep concern among scientists that not only could that virus then mutate those animals and be spilled over to people, but it could do something that's more extensive in terms of a genetic reassortment, they call it a reassortment, where the virus can change in terms of its sequencing, its genetic sequencing so much that it can become much more transmissible to human beings. And if that happens, the mortality rate for bird flu, the case examples of mortality, there's been a, a global outbreak of bird flu for some time now. The case rate in India, I think about 850 people have died. Mm -hmm. The case rate is a, a mortality rate of 53%. Wow. 53%, so one out of every two people who get the virus die. Now, for COVID, it's been about 0.5%. The average age of, of, of death for, for, for the people who, who died, and a lot of people died, mm -hmm. is 82 years old. So it largely affects the elderly. But that's 0.5%. And look what it did to our society, right? Look at the disruption mm -hmm. that that created in the United States and across the world. Imagine if it were 53%. I mean, 10 times 0.5% is 5%. So you're talking about 100 times more virulent. Uh, I mean, as one of our veterinarians at the Center for Humane Economy says, it would end civilization as we know it. But we're playing Russian roulette with these practices by having mink on these farms. Mink and pigs mm -hmm. are the most vulnerable uh, animals when it comes to contracting viruses and then potentially reassorting the virus and spilling it over to humans. So a very dangerous situation. We had a very significant outbreak of swine flu uh, in 2009, and uh, the number of people died was in the in the tens of thousands. So it could it could get a lot worse than that. That's why why we in an era you know COVID 19 era we should have learned our lesson mm -hmm. and we should be doing animal management practices that are sensible mm -hmm. and don't put people at risk. Uh, unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. Again, this is just we're, we're being we're being reckless and thinking, well, it's never going to happen to us. Well, it happened with COVID. I mean, the latest science, you know, does point to the origin of this as a live wildlife market, and we knew that the first SARS uh, virus uh, that happened in in the early 2000s definitely had an animal origin. Mm -hmm. So this is this is a phenomenon. Seventy-five percent of diseases that afflict people start in non-humans and jump the species barriers. And this is not unusual. Right. What what's unusual is that you know it can be highly contagious mm -hmm. and it can be virulent, and that's a deadly combination for us as a society. What can we do to stop all that? Well, we shouldn't have live wildlife markets where we're eating wildlife. Uh, we shouldn't have mink farms uh, where we're we're killing mink for for fur coats when we absolutely don't don't need them. These are animal human interfaces that are needlessly risky when you know that certain wildlife species are much more vulnerable to contagions and to spillover. There's just no reason to take to take this sort of risk mm -hmm. and this is exactly you know what we've called that we've we have a a bill in the congress that we introduced last congress called minks are super spreaders mink in narrowly kept spaces are super spreaders that's what the minks act stands for and it passed the u.s house but the senate didn't take it up because the senator senators from wisconsin fought it because they've got a you know, 20 mink farms in the state. Well, the economic value of those mink farms is negligible for the United States. And the truth is that it could cost us billions or trillions of dollars if we have a 
a viral outbreak and we don't have vaccines to mm -hmm. to deal with the, the threat. So, Charlotte, you asked what we can do. I mean, there's no single answer to that. Every situation is sui generis. But the, but the reality is that we have to be cognizant of creating a particularly dangerous setup mm -hmm. for a virus to emerge and to, you know, mutate or reassort and then potentially, you know, threat human beings. We can't protect ourselves entirely, but we can minimize risks. It's a risk assessment issue. And I think it's crazy for us to have make farms. Just like I argue from a moral perspective, we shouldn't be killing kangaroos for shoes when we can do something else. Right. We don't need mink for coats any longer. Almost nobody wears them. It's a tiny little percentage of consumers in the world who consume mink, yet they're posing a risk to billions of people. A handful of people buy the product. It's a replaceable coat. You can get something else to satisfy your your desires. So you just it's just not needed. It's just absolutely not needed. What about, I mean, this is kind of far-fetched, but what about vaccines for these animals? I mean, if they know they're carrying a certain they're carrying yeah. a certain virus, can they not come up with some kind of vaccine? Vaccines don't stop the disease. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the vaccines really suppress the symptoms, and okay. they did develop a vaccine for mink, but it doesn't prevent the virus from from mutating. It okay. just really suppresses the symptoms, so you don't so you don't know exactly um, what the um, condition is of the of the animals so we we have to prevent these in the first place vaccines mm -hmm. are a are a palliative uh circumstance it doesn't it doesn't cure the disease okay well you know when you think about that with the big picture like 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 you talk about these these mass farmers that that breed chickens and everything i mean that stuff can spread really really fast oh well we have, we have a bird flu outbreak right now in, in the United States, and it's a global virus. It'll be the most expensive bird flu uh, uh, pandemic in in American history. And again, it's it's all over the world. It's not a normal circumstance for us. It's now in 48 states, and we've had to kill about 60 million birds in the U.S. We've mm -hmm. depopulated them, mainly laying hen houses. Uh, because you know you have 250,000 laying hens in a single facility, and one animal gets sick, and they have to kill the whole lot of them because mm -hmm. it can course through that overcrowded, highly stressed population. Same thing with turkey production. So these are 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 having economic impact. It's why egg prices and turkey prices spiked uh, for for some months, and the prices continue to be up. And you know these are these are big threats, pandemic threats, disease threats. These are fundamental. You know we don't think about them so much, but as I said, seventy-five percent of diseases that afflict human beings started in non-human animals, and as mm -hmm. we have more interactions with them in more dangerous ways, especially with certain species, you know we're really we're really courting trouble, really courting trouble. And what about the cosmetic industry now? Is, is that slowing down quite a bit from using animals? The cosmetic industry with animals has been on the decline for a long time. It's a very, very small segment of animal testing. The biggest category of testing is the use of animals for drug development. Mm. So every, for 84 years until uh, Animal Wellness Action, the Center for Human Economy got this passed in the Congress in 2022, um, every year, uh, well, I shouldn't say every year, it's been in place since 1938, continuously, a policy that all new drugs, before they go to human clinical trials, have to go through extensive testing on animals. Even though the data showed that the animals were not particularly predictive in forecasting the human reaction to those drugs. Mm -hmm. So we were using monkeys, we were using dogs, we were using ferrets, we were using a wide range of animals, and we would do the animal tests and screen for the safety of the drug and also the mm -hmm. efficacy. Does the drug do as advertised? If it's a heart drug, does it help your heart? If it's a pain drug, does it relieve pain? And the data show that in 90 
in 95% of cases, when the drugs pass muster in animals, then they go to human clinical trials, they fail. So you can have 20 drugs pass muster in extensive animal tests with each of the protocols going through hundreds or thousands of animals. And then it fails in human clinical trials, so you've got to start over. It's a colossal waste of money. It's not helping protect you know people from these drugs, even if it does you know kind of work at some level in the human clinical trials the drug you're still not safe listen to the drug ads on television right you know they talk about all these side effects oh you could cause depression or sudden heart attack or you know you swallow your tongue or you know you lose your hearing i mean these side effects are incredible so they're doing that because the animal tests and the whole testing protocol Mm -hmm. doesn't protect you from potential side effects and we have learned more and more that each of us is different. Charlotte is different than Wayne Pacelli. Right. And, you know, Charlotte is different from Susie Lamb, who's mm-hmm. different from, you know, Johnny Hudgens. And we can react differently. So this whole testing protocol was so rudimentary and so archaic to be using a separate species. Mm-hmm. Now we have many more sophisticated uh, testing methods that have proved far more reliable. That was a key to our success in passing the FDA Modernization Act 2.0 that Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky and Senator Cory Booker led this effort in the Senate. It was a totally bipartisan effort, and it's the most important animal testing bill that's ever been passed, and I'm so proud that the Center for Humane Economy uh, was able to uh, drive that outcome with animal wellness action. Now, what about um, chimpanzees and stuff? Are, are they still doing tests on them? Because I, I saw uh, like an older TV show where it showed the military doing helmet tests on these poor chimps. You know, where, where they were literally no, crushing. Been, crush- it's, it's been stopped, and I, I worked on it. And in 2015, we finally ended the use of invasive experiments on chimps. Mm. And it was uh, a, a complicated process, but the National Institutes of Health yeah. Led by Dr. Francis Collins, um, and then some very strong congressional action resulted in the NIH and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service essentially collaborating to declare chimps endangered and to forbid their use in invasive experiments. And that's mm-hmm. been the case since 2015. We've had a chimp population that had been used in labs, and it's aging, and there's uh, a good amount of death that's occurred because many of them have been infected with mm-hmm. diseases, so there's a high rate of mortality, but there are a number of chimpanzee sanctuaries around the country, the main one being the, the national chimp sanctuary um, called Chimp Haven in, in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. But uh, I'm, I'm glad to tell you that that's no longer occurring, that uh, we're not conducting invasive experiments on chimps. It's an, another one of the things that I'm very, very proud of and having, having helped the shepherd that through. So you were talking about these sanctuaries. So is that what happens to these chimps that, that were in captivity that they were testing on, that they go to sanctuaries? Yeah, they go to the sanctuaries if the laboratories release them. But a lot of the laboratories uh-huh. have held on to them for reasons that I must say are perplexing for me. But they get government money you know, to house the chimps and uh-huh. they get some you know, additional support to run some of their operations. So they... They try to hold on to them, so there's been a bit of a battle uh, between the animal welfare groups and some of these laboratories, mm-hmm. and it's it's been going on for you know for quite a while. But it's it's you know there's been as I said there's been a lot of death among the chimps just because they you know many of them are older and they've been infected. Mm-hmm. But we're hoping that more of them can get to the sanctuaries and have a better life rather than being in some dank laboratory. Do you think um, it's because may, maybe they're they're hiding the, 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 the tests that you guys didn't know were actually going on with the chimps, and that's what they're hiding? Well, I think I think that the whole industry is generally cloaked in secrecy. I mean, they don't want to talk about this mm-hmm. because they know that it's morally uncomfortable for a lot of people. They don't want to bring additional scrutiny on their operations and. You know, it's clandestine. They just they just don't like to talk about it. So I 
I think that secrecy has been a big a big part of the equation for them for an awfully long time. And you know, you guys have done a terrific job, you know, finding these things to, to shut this stuff down. Well, I think the these gains that we've made on animal testing are are, are really pathbreaking. Mm -hmm. The FDA Modernization Act 2.0 uh, is just a landmark achievement in our, our nation. And countries all across the world saw what we did and they're looking potentially to replicate what we achieved in the United States Congress. And we did it in record time, less than two years. And the chimp, you know, the banner invasive experiment, that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And then in 2016, worked to get a legal standard for chemical testing. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a law that, that really is about evaluating the threats that chemicals pose. You know, there are tens of thousands of chemicals out there. And very few of them have been adequately tested. And mm -hmm. a lot of cancers and other problems result from these chemicals. So... There's been testing there, but again, the animal testing has not been very protective of, mm -hmm. of humans. So in 2016, there was a law against Senator Booker was very involved from New Jersey to to uh, stipulate that alternative tests have to be tried first, mm -hmm. uh, and the animal tests are more of a last resort. But that was unusual at the time, and we are, you know, we're definitely having a fight um, and demand that alternatives be used when when uh, when they're available is it harder to shut down say uh testing programs you know for the u.s government than it is to do with with the big private companies well the government is is definitely you know more vulnerable at times to pressure but in different ways businesses can be the problem with all this is it can be so clandestine uh -huh. and that people really don't know what's going on you've got to do a Freedom of Information Act request and you know, try to get some information and they really keep a tight lid on all this stuff. So it's a um, it's a challenge for us, but we're we're working hard to to try to drive a new era of alternatives use. You guys certainly are working hard. I mean, this the work you do is absolutely incredible. You know, for well, this. I, I thank you. I thank you. And you know, just it's so important that. People don't leave it just up to us, though. You know, it's it's just essential that people get involved, right? Mm -hmm. And it's supporting our group, becoming a member for $20 or $25 is more important than most people realize. Mm -hmm. But then also, you know, writing a letter to Congress or calling a company like Adidas and saying, hey, do better, stop killing the kangaroos, it's the power of collective action that drives big changes none of the things that we achieved could have been achieved just you know, based on our our small professional staff mm -hmm. it's really having so many people who care and the power of that collective action to really demand a better way of treating animals but these animals are, are you know they're, they're remarkable in so many ways right i mean monkeys or chimps or incredible mm -hmm. climbers or elephants are so you know massive and right. and and they you know migrate you know 40 miles in a day and feed and you know really change the whole savanna uh -huh. and you know bears have their attributes all these animals have their attributes cheetahs are so fast and hawks are so fast in flight i mean they're superior to us in some of their individual athletic abilities and physical characteristics. Mm -hmm. We're superior in some other ways, but when it comes to pain, we are all equals. Mm -hmm. They feel pain just like we do. They feel terror and fright like we do. They can feel happiness and joy like we do. Mm -hmm. If we can avoid causing them pain, we should. And you know, sometimes we're, we're so brainwashed to think that this is the way that we should be handling animals, mm -hmm. that we should eat them, you know, from the factory farms, or we should test them in the laboratories, or we should shoot them for trophies, whether they're elephants or moose or whoever they are. I mean, the, to wear their pelts as a fur coat for us. I mean, we can become conditioned in such a way that we are oblivious to our effect on other animals. Mm -hmm. And the whole premise of the animal welfare movement 
is to foster a more conscious awareness that these other animals matter, uh -huh. that they uh -huh. have lives that matter to them, just like our lives matter to us. And we, we really have a, a duty in a society that already has legal strictures on cruelty to animals. What we need to do is more logically apply these strictures so that it applies to these large agricultural settings or it applies to laboratories or it applies to abusive wildlife management practices. We've, we've got to do better. We really must. I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about the animals have feelings for this and feelings for that, because I know for a long time, you know, when, when you listen to different like, or read different stuff, a lot of the time they, people, I don't know, you know whose people were, but, but they felt that animals didn't, didn't have the same feelings as us or anything, that it was different. Yeah, well, that's a way that you separate yourself, right? It clears the mm -hmm. path for you morally if you think, oh, my God, these animals are so different, you know? Mm -hmm. They're, they're, we're of a totally different order than they are, and that means you can do anything to them, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. it's kind of conscious denial mm -hmm. about how we treat them. And science and observation and common sense tell us that sure, animals are different, mm -hmm. but they're fundamentally similar to us in their capacity to suffer. And that's the really central moral criterion in evaluating how we should treat them. And as I said, the other aspect is, you know, there's a matter of necessity mm -hmm. versus gratuitous killing, right? I mean, if you're hiking in the Bob Marshall Wilderness in Montana and a grizzly comes after you, you've got a legitimate argument for self-defense. Right. You have to take the life of the grizzly if the grizzly bear is, you know, coming at you or strikes you. But why go and chase one just to shoot one for a trophy right. where he's not bothering you at all? Those are totally different circumstances, even though the act of shooting the animal may be the same, the circumstances and the moral context mm -hmm. make all the difference in the world. And we're asking people to make a more reasoned judgment about the context of the killing. And we're saying, again, that human beings are very special. Mm -hmm. They are very distinct. And one of our great aspects is that we're so ingenuitive we can figure out how to live our lives without leaving a trail of animal victims in our wake and that is what makes us special mm -hmm. but we've got to act on the damn thing we've got to take action and help these animals well what came to mind when you were saying all that was that there used to be this this wildlife adventure tv show on and i forget who the hell it was but he would the guy was a hunter and he would he would leave food out and bait the animals to come in, oh, yeah. and then while they were eating, he'd shoot them. I mean, what? I mean, yeah. what? I mean, give, give me a break. Oh, baiting is a is a disgraceful activity. It's done for bears in many states. It's done for deer in a bunch of states. It is it violates every norm and standard when it comes to. You know, even hunting ethics. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to give the animal a a fair opportunity to escape. Yeah. It's called fair chase, and this is this is something that's completely at odds with uh, with those standards. Completely at odds. So when you guys are able to get these these victories, I guess the, the the way to look at this stuff is one victory at a time. Because the more victories you get, the better everything's everything else is going to get, right? Because I mean, it's yes, going to take I, time to do this stuff. It, it does, it lifts all boats, you know, when you create a new norm, it changes the standards. But the, the challenge that we have is that animal welfare is so expansive in its, mm -hmm. in its broad, uh, you know, attention to so many species mm -hmm. and so many circumstances. So there's a lot to be done. It can kind of, you know, be overwhelming at times. But this is the beauty of being tactical and strategic and taking on issues like our kangaroos are not shoes campaign. You know, Nike right. shouldn't be doing this. Right. And finally, Nike relented. And that is exactly the way it should have been. And we are very tactical about all the things that we do at the Center for Humane Economy and Animal Wellness Action. That's why I really ask you know, everyone to, to become part of us, even if you can't join us financially if you can't, don't want to give ten dollars or twenty dollars i hope you will think about that sign up and get our email alert to take action and you know we'll guide you 
tell you what the most urgent national legislation is for animals, the most important corporate campaigns. And if we together exert influence and pressure, you know, we can really make big changes. Absolutely. So what is your message to anybody that might might be doing stuff to animals? (laughs) Well, you know, really imagine if the situation were reversed, right? Imagine if the animal had all the power over you. Or imagine if there were some, you know, uh, different, different, um, you know, being that came from another galaxy and they had more power and they had more smarts and they exploited and enslaved us or hurt us in some other way just for some unnecessary purpose. Imagine what that would feel like. Put Mm -hmm. yourself in the other's shoes. I mean, that's the whole notion of empathy is the ability to think about how someone else is feeling. And might does not make right. Just because we happen to be the most powerful species because of the big brain that we have doesn't mean that we should exert uh-huh. this, this abuse of animals as a routine aspect of our you know, social behavior in our society. And I think that that I ask people to, again, it's not a question of equal intelligence Mm -hmm. or equal ability in some other mental pursuit. It's a question of the equality of, of the capacity to suffer. And these other animals suffer, and we should rethink some of the most basic ways that we live. And not just a matter of policy, it's also personal habits. We should think about the food that we eat mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, being much more conscious of, of the animals. You know, we often are very disconnected from these supply chains. Mm-hmm. And just because you're far from it, where the killing occurs or the factory farming occurs, doesn't mean you escape any, you know, moral culpability. Right. I mean, we should be thinking about this. And, and it's important for us to, to make change in this way. What's next for you? Well, we've got a very big agenda in the Congress. There's something called the Farm Bill. We've got new animal fighting legislation. I mentioned we want to ban horse slaughter. There's this terrible abusive practice called horse soaring in the Tennessee walking horse world. Uh, we're trying to stop that. We've got a new animal testing bill that we're trying to pass. On the corporate campaign front, we want to get these pharmaceutical companies to embrace alternatives, Pfizer and Merck and all the others, now that we have passed the FDA Modernization Act and eliminated the animal testing mandate that was in place for all the drug development protocols. Uh, our kangaroos are our shoes campaign. We have these great wins, but we're not done. We still have to get Adidas and New Balance and others to agree to uh-huh. kangaroo-free supply chains, and uh, we'd like them to move toward vegan offerings with recyclable and sustainable human fabrics. Again, uh, so much on so many fronts. Mm-hmm. And really the best way, for Charlotte, for your listeners to figure this out is to go to animalwellnessaction.org or go to the center, go to centerforahumaneeconomy.org and get involved in our campaigns. Absolutely. Wayne, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. It's always to talk with you. it's always wonderful to hear not about these poor animals, but about what you guys are doing, you know, out there on the ground do, doing to stop this stuff. I thank you so much for for helping spread the word. You're great. All right, sir. You have a good rest of your evening. Okay. Thank you. You as well. Bye bye. Okay. Let me get back in here, guys. Hang on. Wrong button. Okay. I need like more arms, right? That was Wayne. At, uh, that, that was Wayne Pacelli, and uh, yeah, they do a lot of great work, you know, uh, trying to prevent cruelty to animals. It's, it's something that that we all should be aware of. I mean, if if you look at, well, like he says, you look at the farming and you look at everything else. Anyway, I am trying to figure out and get used to where the camera is now because the because the laptop is sitting up higher, which means the camera is sitting up higher. So I'm trying to. If you see me on camera, trying to look around and, and get adjusted to this stuff, so it'll take me a while to get adjusted to it. But I want to thank everybody for coming tonight, and I hope you uh, garnered some really cool information from the show, as I did. Uh, that you know, there was stuff I didn't even know about. So that's what it's all about: is to help educate. Okay, uh, tomorrow night 
same place, same model. Let me turn this other mic off because I got some I got some echo going on. Because I I use another mic for the phone. Um, tomorrow night, Jesse H. Long is going to be with us. Jesse H. Long is a lifetime abductee, and he and his brother, I believe, from the age of six, were starting to get a, ended up getting abducted together. And he's got a really really interesting story to tell. He's even had an alien implant in his body. So he's going to be here tomorrow to, to talk to us. Anyhow, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I appreciate it so much. Uh, again, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here. If you're watching from Facebook and you haven't done so already and you like the show, please show me some love with a, with a thumbs up or some hearts or something like that. And if you haven't uh, followed us yet, you should do that. Because we have a lot of go- we have we have we have a lot going on right now. Also, if you're watching, you know, same thing with YouTube. If you're watching from YouTube and you haven't subscribed yet, we have over 552 videos over there, all different topics. As you can tell, we don't always do paranormal stuff. We do things like this to bring awareness of people. Okay, but uh, yeah, go on, please subscribe and show and show us some love. Give, give me some thumbs up over on YouTube, you know, and, and things like that. Uh, California Haunts can also be found on Instagram under Ghostigal, and that's all lowercase. You can find us over at TikTok under California Haunts, and that's lowercase. You can find us over at uh, Twitter under Cal Haunts. So you can find us everywhere, mostly on Facebook, I think. But uh, you can find us everywhere if, if, if you want to check us out and whatnot. Anyway, thank you so much for coming tonight. I have one more quick announcement to make. We have a Patreon opened up, and our Patreon is going to be offering a lot a lot of stuff to people that, that subscribe. I'm only doing one level of subscriptions. We're keeping it at $50. I'm, I'm sorry. My God, I'm so tired. We're keeping it at $5.50. Uh, $5.50. That way it stays affordable for everybody. But what you get for that is anytime we do a pre-record uh, video, before it airs on the main show, that's a pre-record video. Let me get myself back. In fact, my ad didn't come up, and that was Okay, there we go. I don't know. I can't push my buttons tonight. But uh, anyone who signs up at that 550 level, when we do a pre-record video, like tomorrow morning I'm shooting one at 9 a.m., uh, you guys get first crack at the Patreon, and it's a private viewing of that video. So, so it would probably air a week to two weeks in advance of the actual air date. Okay? So that's one of the one of the perks you get. If Nancy's on the show and you guys want to ask Nancy additional questions about what she talked about, we go over there and privately do that with the Patreon people. Or you get a real interesting guest like this gentleman and say you want to pick his brain a little more about what he does, I can probably get him to go over the Patreon, you know, not after hours because it's late by the time the show gets done, but say pick a day and you guys can can, can ask him questions. So that's what the Patreon's about. Plus, once we get enough members, I've got some really cool giveaways. And so I'm going to be doing giveaways for people so it's going to be fun you know we're, we're, we're going to have a lot of fun over there and we're going to be doing and, and as the thing matures we're going to be doing more and more stuff but in fact we have one video i shot that uh we're getting i'm getting ready to do the editing on it and it's going to be the first video and it's already advertised over there of um alien abductees okay so you guys will be the for whoever joins that patreon will be the first ones to see it so it's only 550 a person and uh, per month and I think it's a good deal. And, you know, if you do it per month, right, you know, maybe you don't want to do it the next month, you know, but you'll do it the month after or whatever. But, you know, it's, it's, it's something to look into, okay? So I have put the link in on, like, like when you go to YouTube and Facebook and then look at the information on this show, the link is down at the bottom for you to click on and go on over there, okay? All right. Enough being said, I'm going to give you his information, and uh, then we're going to call it a night, okay? Here we go. Okay, his websites are Animal Wellness, uh, yeah, Action.org, Wayne Paselli Facebook, and BlackfishMovie.com. And of course, his books are The Bond, Our Kinship with Animals, The Other Book is The Humane Economy. He was talking about that during the show. Excuse me. 
And of course, you can get those at Amazon.com. Okay, guys, I'm taking off. I'm going to leave you guys to your rest of your evening. Hope to see you all tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening.